You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and boldly going where no one has gone before. This is Season 3, Episode 6, Star Trek, Infinite Diversity in Infinite Combinations. I'm Carrie Combs, and it's way overdue to note that I use she, her pronouns, and I'm so happy to be sitting across the internet from Adam Thomas, who uses he, him pronouns. Adam, would you like to introduce our guest for today? I would like to introduce our guest for today. Our first guest ever on the podcast for Nerdy Christians is our good friend, Rowan Larson. Rowan is a non-binary queer children and youth minister in the Diocese of Massachusetts. They have a particular interest in Christian formation of children, youth, and young adults and theology of and for LGBTQ plus people of all ages. When not at Grace Church, Rowan can be found riding and working with horses, knitting, quilting, or otherwise crafting, or playing Dungeons and Dragons with some of their colleagues in ministry, including Carrie and me. Rowan is in our D&D game, which we'll be talking about in a couple of episodes, and it might come up a little bit today, too. We'll see. Hi, Rowan. Hello. So Rowan, you were one of our very first listeners and somebody who encouraged us to continue on into a second season and gave us lots of great feedback. So uh, we really appreciate you uh, and your encouragement early on in our podcasting career. You're welcome. I, I just wish that there were more people willing to talk about the intersection of nerddom and Christianity. And you guys are doing it, which is fantastic. I feel like Adam and I have sort of proved our nerd chops over the the course of the podcast, but I want to prove Rowan's nerd chops by sharing the story of how Rowan and Adam met. Oh, yes, please do. We were at diocesan convention. I knew Rowan from the ordination process in Connecticut, and I noticed they were knitting a scarf. Do you want to talk about that scarf, Rowan? Yes, I was was wearing the Hufflepuff scarf that I knit and knitting a... Dungeons and Dragons role-playing scarf where the designer wrote an adventure where you rolled dice as you knit to figure out which like pattern or branch of the story you were going to take. And so I saw this scarf, I heard the story and I was like, I think you need to meet Adam. I think that's going to be the beginning of a beautiful thing. <laughs> it has been. It's great to have Rowan with us today. And we're going to be talking today specifically about gender and using Star Trek in all of its different incarnations as a way, as a lens to talk about that particular topic. Uh, so, Carrie, why don't you give us our scripture quotation today? All right. Our scripture quotation is from Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. Our nerd canon quote is from Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek. Intolerance in the 23rd century? Improbable! If humankind survives that long, we will have learned to take a delight in the essential differences between people and between cultures. We will learn that differences in ideas and attitudes are a delight, part of life's exciting variety, not something to fear. It's a manifestation of the greatness that God, or whatever it is, gave us. This infinite variation and delight, this is part of the optimism that we built into Star Trek. 
All right, Rowan, you are, of the three of us, the Star Trek guru. The Trekkiest. The, the Trekkiest of the Trek. I'm the, you are the Trekkiest, I'm the Trekker, and Carrie is the Trek. Trek, I guess that's yeah. the... Yeah. <laughs> that's the adjectival. <laughs> so the superlative why don't you, Trekker. Yeah, you are the superlative. Why don't you um, kick us off here? I was introduced to Star Trek through the series Deep Space Nine that was filmed in the 90s and early 2000s. And I really saw part of my own lived experience as a non-binary person captured in the Trill and in Jadzia Dax in particular. And we'll, we'll get back to the Trill in a moment. But it was the first lesbian kiss on TV was Star Trek DS9. Star Trek, the original series, is the foundation of slash fan fiction. Um, Spock and Kirk are known as the pairing that launched, launched a thousand ships <laughs> in, the, um, in the fandom world. And it was the first time that a homosexual pairing was not only considered like what people wanted, but somehow normative. And before we get any deeper, I just want to give a quick overview of what the differences are between sex, gender, and sexual orientation. I'm going to start with uh, sex and sexual orientation or sexuality because they sound the most similar. So sex is considered to be about the body and about the parts that you have. It's not a great way to differentiate human beings because the vast majority of human beings are not perfectly male or perfectly female. There are variations that are minute. There are variations that are very obvious. There are intersex folks whose genitalia can be ambiguous and the rights of intersex people to not have their bodies uh, medically mutilated without their consent is still something that we're working on in this country. But that's sex. Sex is kind of the external body and the bits or the internal sexual bits. <laughs> it's the hardware. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's the hardware. Uh, okay. <laughs> if you want to stay with that metaphor, uh, sure. the software is the sexuality and gender parts. So sexuality is who you're attracted to or not attracted to if you're asexual or on the ace spectrum, which is a very valid sexuality to have that we also need to talk about more. Um, but sexuality is who, who you're attracted to, sometimes defined in opposition to who you are. So for example, gay men cling very strongly to their own identity as male and liking other males in terms of gender. That's how you end up with trans exclusionary radical feminists because they believe that trans women whose gender is trans, but they can see themselves on the spectrum anywhere from fully female to sort of female to neither, to one, one or the other sometimes. Gender, gender is a spectrum and it's complicated. But if you get people who are sort of, you know, they see themselves as purist in terms of sexuality, then it's has to be cisgender male to cisgender male to be gay has to be cisgender women and a cisgender woman to be considered lesbians. There are many gay men and lesbians who are not nearly that prescriptive about it. Can you quickly just uh, give us a, just a quick um, breakdown of the word cis 
it's Latin. Oh. Yeah, so trans meaning across and or across or alternate from or, you know, different to. And cis is same. So cis is um, on the side of. So you are the thing, the thing that you were assigned at birth or told that you were culturally, that you are that and you're on board with it. Trans is saying that you're different from that starting place. The language of assigned at birth is really helpful because that way you can convey to people, like I can say I was assigned female at birth, but I don't identify with that. I identify as non-binary. Um, so that people who look at me and see my gender expression and my, my outside um, can have a little bit more of an understanding of who I am and who I identify as. For people who are cisgendered, you know, they, they just are that thing. So Carrie, you were ident- also uh, assigned female at birth and you are, so you're a cisgender. And, and this is, is this besides the fact that they can start um, wildfires, this is one of the problematic reasons <laughs> around gender reveal parties. <laughs> Yes, yeah. because your kid has not told you who they are on the inside, and we are not betazoids who can sense someone's mm-hmm. inner thoughts, feelings, and emotions, <laughs> so we cannot know until the child is old enough to actually express that. Because gender is a complicated spectrum, and it's about who you feel yourself to be. And it's got two facets. It's got gender identity, which is who you feel yourself to be and who you know that you are on the inside and gender expression, which is how you express that gender identity. Say for example, like me, I consider myself to be a transgender non-binary person, trans because the gender identify at is not the one that I was assigned at birth and non-binary because I am not into either male or female. I really would just go with neither um, if I had to pick on the list of like, check which box. I see myself as queer because trying to you know, identify who I'm attracted to in opposition to my own gender is not straight mm-hmm. and not gay or lesbian. So I go with queer as sort of a blanket term. Am I making any sense whatsoever with this really complicated? <laughs> I'll have to admit, I grabbed when we, I knew we were talking about gender in Star Trek. And as I was 10 minutes into the Outcast episode from TNG and they kept saying gender when they meant sex, it frustrated me so much that I re-Googled and downloaded the genderbred person. Have you ever seen this illustration? It's a little gin, gingerbread person. And it, it has, you know, identity, gender identity in the brain of your identity attraction, sexual attraction in the heart, sex in the bits. And then beyond that is the, you know, on the exterior is the expression. And so I'll admit this is something I hadn't thought about for many years as a cisgendered woman who presents mostly feminine um, until I started listening, listening to the stories of my trans friends and people on the internet and opening up my, my binary gendered world and really finding that to be a rich place and to learn a lot being able to express the difference between identity, attraction, sex, and expression is important because they're nuanced and they're, none of them are a perfect binary. They're all on a spectrum. Absolutely, Carrie. 
the queer community in general um, is very appreciative of the gender bred person model and the gender unicorn, which is the other version that's out there, in that it's a good start. It's simplified, but it's a good start in trying to show that these things are spectrums. And there's something that queer people really think about a lot that cisgender and heterosexual people don't really think about. I don't remember what I was watching recently. It could have been one of these Star Trek episodes um, where someone said, well, yeah, I'm a woman, but I've never really thought about it. It just yeah, is. Dr. Crusher talks about that. Yeah. In one of the episodes. People, people in general, when they have a discomfort around gender, sex, or sexuality, love to make assumptions about things. The number of times I have said that I am non-binary and trans and I'm married to my wife, people ask me, oh, does your wife also use they, them pronouns? Is your wife also non-binary and trans? Like, no, it is not transitive. It is not like if I am this, not then catching. also, yeah. <laughs> no, my wife is a cisgender woman and it's my wife. And yeah, and that's that's where the complexity comes in because I think just like the Star Trek episodes that we're going to discuss in a minute, they, they, there's too many, there's too much thinking that that these words are synonyms. Mm-hmm. And so to be a cisgender woman, oh, that must mean you're straight, but that's not that's a completely different axis. Yeah, or that people who are not heterosexual cisgender belong only with one another, which I think definitely comes up in the Outcast, where the the reversal is happening. So this is an androgynous society. These are the, what's the species called? I don't remember. Oh, they are one of the many aliens with forehead bridges. It's it's hard to keep track. So the species is androgynous and the people who identify with a gender are seen as throwbacks, as primitive. Um, And when we meet this character, Soren, who is, chooses to reveal herself to be a woman to be female um, to Commander Riker. She late she later says that she has had relationships, but only with other people who have revealed themselves to be male. So it's like this: they're the subset of the species, and o- they can only be with with t- together. I'm not sure if that's because she feels secretive. Given that they uh, employ conversion therapy in a really mm-hmm. militaristic way, uh, I, I would imagine that it was a safety concern. That's a good point. Yeah, the race is the Janai. I just looked it up. Ah, the Janai. Yes. So this is the episode that carries. So maybe we can jump into our oh, Star yeah. Trek discussion here. Yep. Uh, the episode of Next Generation where Riker falls in love with a a woman uh, from an androgynous society who it is anathema to identify oneself as male or female. It is offensive uh, to them. It is offensive to this society. The writers thought they were writing an episode secretly about homosexuality when they were actually writing an episode about uh, transphobia. Yeah, I think that's what they were trying to do Um, because there is a culture that considers themselves to be beyond gender and that you are an abomination if you identify as a gender. So there's two separate levels operating here. There's the level of gender identity, uh, gender expression is a non-issue because gender identity is so fraught 
that gender expression immediately gets you sent to invasive conversion therapy. Right. They all uh, have the same outfit on, basically. They all have the same, the same haircut. Outfit, same, same terrible haircut. haircut. It was, it was, got that haircut. It was a terrible haircut. Short bangs, right around the ears. There is, so there's the gender identity level. And then there's also the sexuality level because Soren says that she is attracted to male identified Janai mm-hmm. or male identified people like Riker, who is like the cisist of cisgender. Oh yeah, he is. He's very He's much a like manly man with a beard. Hold my beer. I got this sort of guy. I'm going to, I'm going to fling my legs over chairs to sit in them. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The writers don't really understand the difference between sexual attraction and gender. And like you said, Carrie, it is an instance of using gender when you really should be talking about sexuality. Yeah. It's about attraction, but it's attraction that is grounded on Soren's identity. And um, before Roddenberry died, he expressed support for the LGBT community and LGBT rights and wanted to have clearly lesbian and gay characters written into the show. I did not know that. And in an interview, Jonathan Frax, the actor who plays Riker, commented that the episode actually wasn't daring enough and that mm-hmm. Soren should have been portrayed as more male appearing mm-hmm. to get their point across better. If the actor had been, because all of the Janai are played by female actors, I, I, believe, I believe so, uh, including Soren. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if it had been a male actor playing an androgynous person, that would have been more provocative in the early 90s? Not necessarily provocative, but clearer about what they were trying to do. Okay. And even today in 2020, you know, 28 years after this episode aired, non-binary people who are assigned male at birth are not always seen as validly non-binary. There's a sort of sense that to be non-binary is to be androgynous, to be assigned female, who someone who is then presenting more masculinely. But there are plenty of assigned male non-binary people out there, but because some of their secondary sex characteristics are harder to hide and make look androgynous, they're not respected. And it is something that's incredibly frustrating to friends of mine who identify that way. What's frustrating about watching this episode is is the binariness that presume that in the future is being presented as the human way. So this androgynous race is meeting this, you know, the human human race and we there's saying we have gender in our in our culture. We have men and women. And then they talk about the differences between men and women. How much more rich would this have been if Riker had been like, hey, we have gender, we have men, women, genderqueer, non-binary, trans, agender, third gender people. We've got all of those things. We have a rich spectrum of gender, which is different from our attraction. Whereas, you know, in this episode, they're doing their best, but they're the whole gender thing for Soren seems to hinge on her attraction and her sexual relationships, not on what she feels in her, in her heart and in her head as to who she is. Right. One thing to remember, though, in thinking about the way that Starfleet deals with gender is that at this point in the 23rd century, and it's evidenced in other series in doing really easy uh, medical changes to one's body to um, transition in a way that today is absolutely entirely not possible, it would have been really easy 
to pass as cisgender with medical intervention in this timeline because the technology is so good. There is an episode in Deep Space Nine where a male Ferengi gets um, medically changed into a female Ferengi for its own complicated reason um, to the point where a male Ferengi is attracted to and pursues this now female Ferengi and someone else is trying to say that's not like she's not who she says she is she's really this guy and to the point where the character ends up stripping off enough of their clothes to see that no this is a female body except it's not like there's a hormonal change there's an out outward change so the possibility that there are transgender characters and people in Star Trek who are just passing without it being a big deal is entirely possible. Personally, I like to think that that's true, um, but it does ignore the nuance that we have now. And some of it is, you know, the limitations of when it was written. And in the episode that we were talking about, The Outcast, Crusher says to Soren, well, the human human people have gotten beyond gender as a as a marker for what kind of career you can have and so on and so forth. And then at the poker game, Worf, for some reason, is spouting all of this, you know, 20th century and before. Yeah, people just write that off as Klingons being Klingons. But on the other hand, there are like absolutely kick butt female Klingons who Mm -hmm. are just taking names left and right. And I, I see what the writers are trying to do, but it really does a disservice to ultimately one of their few actors of color who is then forced to be in this position of I'm going to be the backwards thinking one. Well, I think, yeah, I think sometimes yeah. Worf just, they give him this curmudgeonly dialogue mm-hmm. because he, because Michael Dorn delivers it so well. We're, I'm, I'm looking at our time and I, I want to make sure we have enough time to talk mm-hmm. about the trill. The trill are super important. They're often held up as this, you know, beacon for transgender inclusion in Star Trek which is true and not true, right? Like it's true in the sense that when Jadzia meets one of her old Klingon friends who hasn't seen Dax, the joined symbiont since the previous host who was a male and comes up and says, Curzon, my old friend, how are you doing? And Jadzia says, I'm not Curzon anymore, it's Jadzia now. And it's like, ah, Jadzia, my old friend. And it is the most beautiful acceptance of someone's change in gender in any media ever. That's how I had been introduced to that character was seeing that on, you know, some Reddit sub, you know, some subreddit of this is how to be a good trans ally. Don't make a big deal about it. Don't apologize. Just say, just embrace your friend as who they're telling you they are. If, if people could respond to trans folks clarifying their gender the way they do to people clarifying their dog's gender. If you come up to a dog on the street and you're like, oh, who's a good girl? And the owner says, oh, actually it's a boy. Go, oh, who's a good boy? And like immediately it's not a problem. But for some reason, like we can handle that, but we can't handle it with other humans. That's a really good comparison, right? Because, you know, people who aren't used to thinking it or people who misgender other people fall all over themselves and, and feel like it's this makes it in the end more about the person who's made the mistake than about the person who's clarifying their identity. Yes. But it's also one of the reasons why Carrie and I, as cisgender people, 
gave our pronouns at the beginning of the episode. Much because overdue. The more the the more we can normalize the sharing of pronouns for all people. The less pressure there is for people whose pronouns are not automatically assumed in the correct way, I would say. That's what I, I have the mind in my email signature for that very reason is like, well, it it costs me very little to put them there. And if it makes someone else feel more comfortable clarifying theirs, then that's that's absolutely something I will do. Yeah, there are trans and non-binary people who change their given name to better align with their gender identity. And there are those that don't. Mm-hmm. I know Hannah's who use he, him pronouns. I know like Matthew's who use she, her pronouns and all sorts of names that use they, them pronouns. And you can't assume it's even more important in a non-visual media like a podcast to give your pronouns because folks like to assume based on the timbre of the voice they're hearing what the gender of the person is, which is a false corollary that our culture has just decided is true. Speaking of names, uh, the main character of Star Trek Discovery is Michael Yep. Burnham. And if you didn't know anything about the show, you wouldn't expect Sonequa Martin-Green who's a woman to be playing a character amazing. named and is just killer uh, uh, to be playing that character. L- let's get back to the trill. Um, they, they show up first in an ex- a next generation episode called the host, but they're, they haven't really clarified how the trill work in that episode, because it seems that the symbiont just is the person that they are, no matter who the host is in that episode. They basically just take over the host completely. In yeah. DS9, they clarify that with Jadzia, which then carries on into recent episodes of Discovery, which we're not going to talk about because they're under our embargo of being too new to talk about on the podcast. Beyond just to say that Discovery is actually having uh, trans and non-binary actors playing these new characters. Yes. The host ends up being wrong in terms of canon for literally everything that later gets established about the trill. It was one of those moments of like, we didn't think this all the way through. Um, And then it turns out this is a really cool species to play with in terms of characters and themes and what kind of political statements we can make. When I was being introduced to the character of Dax, who I've never watched DS9, so it was fascinating to watch these episodes um, Dax talks about her previous hosts as though they were kind of like D&D characters. Like I would talk about, oh, well, when my character did this or that, like they have different personalities. That's the same through line of the person Dax, but each incarnation's a little different. Is that how that character gets portrayed throughout the rest of the series? Yes. And how Trill in general get portrayed. You are the sum of your past lives. You're not your past life. Like the symbiote is part of you and is the the memory center and what holds the memories of your past lives. But you're not the person that you were before. You're the person you were before plus the host that you are now. On the one hand, you know, they're seen as this beacon of trans identity because they transition in terms of gender over the course of their lives, over the course of the symbiote's life. Uh, The symbiote is not really given gender at any point. Um, folks in the queer community sometimes use they to refer to the symbiote instead of gendering it. Is that because it basically looks like, uh, like a tadpole? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They're like, as opposed to humanoid is what I'm saying. Yeah. They are not humanoid. And that's probably part of it. Um, when humanoids are involved, people really want to use gendered language. 
And the hosts are, you know, up until this point in the canon are purely male or purely female and are male trills and female trills. And there's not any other variation, much like there is not for any other human um, on the show. And, and yet we get Cisco referring to Jadzia in the episode rejoined as old man, which I, I loved as, again, being completely new to these characters, that they have, he has a pre-existing relationship with Curzon, Dax's previous host, and now knows Dax as Jadzia, this woman, um, but still uh, the personality of Jadzia I could see was like this, you know, layered being wise beyond her appearing appearance, um, full of years, full of wisdom and experience and stories and having having the captain refer to her as you know old man was really delightful to see with the trill there's this sort of variable like almost in the way that you would think about someone with a disassociative identity disorder or multiple personalities where sometimes the different personalities rise more than others Mm. i'm wondering then if it's actually a, if that incarnation of the trail is actually less helpful in exploring trans identity because I'm sure things change when one transitions and comes out publicly and starts to present a certain way that might be different from how they presented when they were matching the sex they were assigned at birth. But th- there's not a difference in personhood in that way. Um, whereas Odon in TNG is has the same mannerisms, has the same personality throughout his hosts. The host might change gender or gender expression, um, be a different sex, but it's the host, but the, the symbiote is still the same creature. It depends on the person. Mm. I know trans people, um, including myself, who say, I am always who I have been. There are things I didn't know about myself, but who I was was the same. And there are trans people who see their previous life as something that's dead to them. Um, People talk about their dead names as the name that they were assigned and then changed away from. Most trans folks prefer using like the currently accurate pronouns to talk about them in the past. It's personal. Some people say, no, that is when I was a person who used male pronouns, who used those pronouns. Some people say, well, no, I use they, them pronouns now. So therefore it should always be they, them pronouns. And it's really personal and hard to know until you ask people. But with the trill, there's this sense of you you keep it all, but you also leave a lot of it behind. And it's in that way, a decent representation because that is a spectrum that trans folks find themselves on in regard to who they were before they figured out their identity. And, and now, we, again, we're trying not to spoil anything in, in Star Trek Discovery. It's possible that we're having a a joined uh, person with a symbiote who the person was non-binary before the symbiote was joined to them. It's unclear. Right now, she, her pronouns are being used. And what's the most likely is that no one bothered to ask because the show's writers are by and large, not queer and trans people. Is this the character Adira? So the the actor is non-binary, goes by they, them, but their character is currently she, her, which could be explained as no one bothered to check or that the character is non-binary and chooses to use she, her pronouns. 
also valid. I haven't seen this yet. No, that's true because but I want to. Your pronouns do not determine your gender. Uh, just because you use one set of pronouns does not mean mm. like this is who I am. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of possibilities that the the queer and especially the trans Trek community is really mulling over and are um, anxiously awaiting it to be made clear whether it's that Adira chooses she, her pronouns and identifies as non-binary, whether no one is asked or whether it's some complicated, we're going to deal with gender by having it be an alien thing. Exploring various issues through alien peoples is a long and storied tradition in Star Trek. Um, and in and, science fiction and every mm, other media. Yeah. And, and I, I fall in, I've fallen into that trap in my D and D world uh, and I'm trying to, figure out ways around it Mm. or to to kind of get out of that particular trap because by making the elves of Dane and Sularil be people who whose language doesn't have a concept for gender who don't who who don't have who, who might present with particular sexual characteristics but don't then assign those those characteristics to gender um it it took me a while to uh, to realize that within the world, because the first couple of elves that I created and wrote books about are, are female. And I had to go, Oh, well, maybe it's because they don't actually live with the other elves now. And they just to pass in the rest of the world, they were like, okay, this is too hard to explain. So we're just going to go with, with what people call us and, uh, and just sort of suck it up. Um, which is not, which looking back on it, it was probably a, a poor choice. And it wasn't until Rowan started playing in our game and we decided that uh, Rowan's character, Shona Seer, would also be non-binary as Rowan is themselves, um, that I started having to think, okay, what does that actually mean culturally for a people who don't have gender as part of their language system because language is what makes our thoughts happen. You know, we, if we don't have a concept for it, how are we going to talk about it? Um, and so I've had to think things through like, well, what do they call their birth parent? You know, mm. so, so in my language now for, for elves, um, the birth parent has, that's a word for birth parent. Um, it's not mom. Mm-hmm. It's not mother. It's, there's a specific word for it. Um, kind of like the tacos for Mary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Um, and then there's also a uh, kind of a love parent where your your and your love parent might Aww. not be your birth parent's spouse. It might be somebody completely different. And so trying to figure out all that stuff, it, because my brain is so wired to think in terms of mother and father mm-hmm. and the gendered language of parents and parental roles and, and realizing how I've grown up uh, socialized in a particular way. Um, continuing to challenge myself to see these concepts in their much more nuanced ways is making me a better human. And I'm also realizing how much more I have to do to continue to uh, understand more about the, the many and varied wonders of the world. And especially how God is, is at work and is displayed in all of God's glory in that diversity. Playing our game has actually been really helpful for me in terms of correcting people about pronouns. I am incredibly shy and conflict diverse when it comes to anything about myself. And I am horrible at correcting people because it always ends up with someone apologizing and making it all about themselves. And then I comfort them. And it's like, I I don't have the time or energy for that. 
thankfully at work, I have five-year-olds who correct their parents. who's like, Rowan is they, mama. Good for them. <laughs> they're my, my littles little are allies. like, oh, they're my favorite. Aww. They're my favorite. But in the game world, it's been good experience for me to continue to correct people. Is what's happened is over time, like if there's an elf character that Adam voices, uh, an NPC, people in the party and including our DM occasionally will slip up with pronouns and, and use male pronouns because mm-hmm. it's a male voice that they've been hearing with mm-hmm. associated with this character. When people slip up with Shona's here, it's often female pronouns because people are used to my voice, which has a more, um, a higher timbre sounds mm-hmm. what people assume a woman's voice should sound like. And it's been a great experience for me to say, well, actually no. Um, and we're able as a group to just say, okay, and move on and fix it. And that's like, that's the playground that everybody needs to have if we're ever going to get away from the feelings that people have about gender and pronouns and identity and the way that they're kind of weaponized against trans people. So as we finish up this conversation, Rowan, can you just talk us through the episode title, Infinite Diversity and Infinite Combinations? I can talk a little bit to it. Um, I am not super well-versed because it's a an original series thing for Spock. And it's a philosophy of the Vulcan people that celebrates the array of variables in the universe and says that there are infinite ways for diversity and there are infinite ways that that diversity can be permutated and accommodated and put together and just it's a really beautiful philosophy that the queer community um, is totally on board with because it does a better job of defining our community than any of the other boxes and names we've come up with have. Because like many of us have reclaimed queerness as a term because it's a blanket term that's not about specific boxes, the way that gay or lesbian or trans or whatever, there are many, many boxes that we've come up with to talk about. And you always exclude somebody always it's impossible not to because you you end up excluding people and by saying that there's infinite diversity and infinite combinations you don't exclude anybody you say that you just are one of those infinite things and we have this individuality which is part of a larger tapestry yes it's not individuality for individuality's sake it's a thread in a tapestry that we as christians see as god's blessing of diversity, which we can see from the very story of creation, of God creating diversity as one of the first acts of creation. Absolutely. Except Christians don't like to look at it that way. And that's why our show is a, is a podcast for progressive Christians who love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and Rejecting the gender binary. (laughs) Rejecting the gender binary. Just yeet it right out of airlock. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Great. Any last words, Rowan, before we, uh, well, not, you know what I mean. You're not about about to throw them out the airlock, are you? No, you're not going to get airlocked (laughs) like on, like on uh, Battlestar Galactica or anything. Um, I, I love Trek for a number of reasons. One of them is that 
it's always been a groundbreaking corner of the media landscape since its inception in the 60s between Uhura and Kirk being the first interracial kiss between Jedzia and her wife from a past host being the first lesbian kiss on TV in the 90s to the way that in Discovery in the first season, this is not a spoiler, there's a gay couple who are just gay together. And it's great. And they don't they don't die tragically or have well, something Well, they do happen. and then they don't and it's oh, complicated. No. Okay. No, they, we, they, they backtrack that. They, they backtrack, backtrack that, that real quick. Once <laughs> yeah. they realize how upset the community was that they killed their gays like everybody else. Um, Kelsey actually, when we came to that point in the first season, refused to watch any more of it until I then yeah. like watched the rest of the season and was like, they backtrack. <laughs> uh, but she was so mad that yeah. like, here's some representation and you killed us. Um, mm -hmm. But but what I love about Trek is that it's always been pushing these boundaries and it's been going where no other media has gone before. And it continues to do that in 2020. Like you, you would think that there would be less ground for it to break, but there's still a long way to go, especially for people who are not cisgender and not heterosexual. Thank you so much for, for joining Thank us. You. Yeah, oh, this absolutely. was fantastic. This Wonderful. is like the best thing I could do on a Friday afternoon. This time on the podcast, we're rereading chapters 17, 18, 19, and 20 of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Here's a quick recap. Chapter 17, Cat, Rat, and Dog. On the walk back from Hagrid, Scabbers escapes Ron's pocket. Ron races after him and Harry Hermione race after Ron right into the reach of the Whomping Willow. The big black dog pulls Ron into a tunnel at the tree's base and Crookshanks helps Harry and Hermione follow. The tunnel leads to the Shrieking Shack, where they confront Sirius Black. Harry even gets in a solid punch before Lupin shows up. He had been studying the Marauder's map when everything became clear. Now, if only the trio would let Lupin explain about Scabbers, a.k.a. Peter Pettigrew. Chapter 18, Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs. Sirius wants to commit the murder for which he was imprisoned, but Lupin convinces him to wait until he explains everything to Harry, Ron, and Hermione, who all think the adults are crazy. Lupin tells them about his unfortunate lycanthropy and about how the tunnel to the Shrieking Shack and the Whomping Willow were installed so he could transform safely. But his three best friends, Sirius, James, and Peter, figured out his secret and became unregistered animagi so they could hang out with him while he was in wolf form. But they were reckless, running about the grounds at night, and the most reckless thing of all was the trick Sirius played on Snape, getting Snape to go down the tunnel to meet the werewolf Lupin. Snape holds grudges for a long time, and it turns out he's been in the room for a while now, under Harry's invisibility cloak. Chapter 19, The Servant of Lord Voldemort. Snape, Lupin, and Sirius rehash their old school grievances for a bit until the trio all try to disarm Snape at once, which knocks him unconscious. Lupin and Sirius coax the rat away from Ron and force him to resume his true form. Pettigrew pleads and pleads, but it is of no use. No one but him seems to believe his delusions. 
Turns out he was the Potter's secret keeper, but Sirius still blames himself for Lillian James's death because it was his idea to change secret keepers, a bluff to throw Voldemort off the scent. But Peter had been an agent of Voldemort for over a year, and it was just the chance he was waiting for. When he found out Sirius was after him, he blew up the street and faked his own death. Sirius found out he was still alive by Fudge's newspaper. Sirius escaped in his dog form, came to Hogwarts, and spent all year tracking down scabbers with the help of Crookshanks. Lupin and Sirius get ready to kill Pettigrew, but Harry intercedes. He doesn't want them to become murderers. They'll take Peter and the still unconscious Snape back to the castle. What could possibly go wrong? Chapter 20, The Dementors Kiss. As they head back along the tunnel, Sirius asks Harry to live with him. Sirius is, after all, Harry's guardian. When Harry says yes, the joy is palpable on Sirius's face, transforming him into his true, non-homicidally obsessive self. The weird parade emerges into the night, and when the full moon comes out, the predictable happens. Lupin turns into a werewolf, Sirius turns into the big dog to protect the others, and Pettigrew turns into the rat to escape. Harry and Hermione find Sirius injured, and all three are surrounded by Dementors. As they lean in to kiss Harry, who is desperately trying to cast the Patronus charm, a true Patronus gallops towards them, scattering the Dementors in all directions. Who cast it? Someone familiar? Harry can't figure it out before unconsciousness takes him. I was so struck rereading this by the instant change in Lupin when he gets, when he's figuring, he's almost like vocalizing as he figures out, you know, it was you unless you switched to Sirius and his quick shift from going there probably to protect the children from Sirius, who he thinks is a mass murderer, to going there to help reveal the truth. Um, I really applaud his flexibility in thinking and his nimble mindedness in that moment. Yeah, he isn't just parroting back what the wizarding community has been saying for the last dozen years. Speaking of parroting back prejudices, I am curious as to Hermione's prejudice against werewolves. Harry, don't trust him. He's been helping Blackett into the castle. He wants you dead too. He's a werewolf. I was wondering about that. I saw it more with Ron where his Lupin goes to like help him in just a couple sentences later. And he says, get away from me, werewolf. It's in italics, at least in my copy. Uh, I saw saw Ron as very much instinctually parroting back the Wizarding World's prejudice. I don't know about Hermione's. It seems like in three years, plus doing all the extra homework for Snape. And then he gives her, he gives them back their wands. And this, his wording is interesting. Yeah. You're armed. We're not. Now will you listen? This is the first time I've I've ever thought about holding your wand as being armed. Oh, absolutely. Essentially, these these books make child soldiers out of them. Like the amount of damage the average third year can do is pretty extreme. And it's basically having a wand can be like having a gun. Harry is sitting there trembling, thinking about killing Sirius. So this is something I've thought about a lot, like the inherent violence of the wizarding world that every person's walking around armed. Yeah, how, how, yeah, he, doesn't would, know. how he doesn't know Avada Kedavra. I'm sure there's other ways to kill to kill people in the wizarding with, with a wand, but I'm mm. just curious, like how would Harry have killed? And then in a minute later, he doesn't want them to kill Pettigrew. Mm-hmm. And it's not because he needs Pettigrew alive in order to show that Sirius is innocent. It's because he doesn't want Sirius and Lupin to become murderers. The pause is not what spell do I use to kill this man? It's that Harry, you know, violence for Harry is kind of anathema. Even even though he has, he, he we've talked a couple of times in this book about the the desire to kill Sirius infecting mm-hmm. Harry like a poison. Like a poison. I'm curious if Sirius is sympathetic during this ser- this section, even though he wants to 
commit the murder that he was put away for. Is what he still a sympathetic character? Oh. Even though he still wants to commit murder. That's a good question. And I'm I'm just grateful that Harry talks him down. I, Lupin's ready to do it too, right? Yeah, Lupin is all on board. And that makes, somehow that seems less reasonable than Sirius being willing to murder. Yeah, well, Sirius has had 12 years of so, yeah. trauma in Azkaban. And systematic dehumanization through the Dementors, removing all that's good in him. They even say that as a dog, he is a little bit safer from the Dementors because they assume that in his dog form, he has succumbed to, to their horrible presence like the other prisoners have who, some, who, who have become dehumanized through the Dementors' presence. We're really bit, the, the dementors are pretty horrifying. Another horrifying thing is that trick Sirius wanted to play on Snape by setting Lupin on him. If I were Lupin, I, that would take me a long time to get over the fact that he would have actually become a murderer just because his friend wanted to get one up on a school bully. That's that's sick, and that shows I think a level of meanness in Sirius's character that we see come out later in the book sometimes. Lupin's given his chance by Dumbledore and he hates himself for betraying Dumbledore's trust throughout the school year Mm. in not telling Dumbledore about Sirius's ability to become an animagus. I wonder how much Lupin beats himself up over this. We already know that he is, has, as a werewolf, he is succumbed to self-harm when biting and scratching himself in the Shrieking Shack. And I'm just curious about Lupin's mental state being a werewolf but not being somebody like Fenrir Greyback, who we'll meet later, who embraces the 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 negative side of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he's a, he's happy to be kind of like the animalistic. He'll even bite people when he's in his human form, whereas Lupin takes this very deeply on himself, even though it's completely not his fault. He was bitten as a small child, and yet he believes the stigma sometimes that he is less than other people when it's not his fault at all. And he's treated in a way that's subhuman and animalistic. And so you wonder if the shame he feels about not going to Dumbledore over what he knows about Sirius, it's almost as if he's justified that shame because it's like internalized oppression of being a werewolf in a society. He says, he says to himself, well, I, I am this monster, you know, so I, I, I must I must be acting like this because I am the monster they think I am. And you really should have told Dumbledore about the map and, and the anime guy form if if he was in fact the villain that that everyone thinks he is at that point. That's hard not to judge Lupin for. But his you know, his because the shame is so deeply ingrained in him, it's like he couldn't he's already felt shame over being a werewolf. This is like one more thing from a person he respects deeply who gave him a chance when no one else would, who gave him a second chance in letting him become a teacher. Yeah, yeah, it's the one person in the world he probably doesn't want to lose respect from. The Potter's death is so sad. It's their age that they were 20 years old with a newborn, with a one-year-old baby. The fact that they trusted these three friends enough to, I mean, I'm like, why wouldn't they have picked Lupin as the, the double-blind secret keeper? Maybe because they thought that he was too powerful too, and Voldemort would assume either it's Sirius or it's Lupin, but not this Pettigrew character. The Dementor's kiss we see later is is horrifying, and we've probably already dwelt a while on the existential crisis that that would cause. Yeah, but it seems that Hermione is there too. Yeah, Hermione almost gets kissed. Yeah, yikes. 
Yeah, it seems to be. She's she's in the group of the three of them who's being surrounded. So I'm going to refer to my favorite fan fiction again. In my favorite fan fiction, Hermione's parents actually, the Aerith Mancer by White Squirrel, find it on fanfiction.net. Hermione actually gets taken out of school after this. I think they transfer her to Bobaton. At least oh, at some point in the stories, because these things keep happening to her, right? She almost gets killed by a troll in book one. Yep. She gets petrified in book two. Yep. Book three, she almost gets her soul sucked out. It's like, what muggle parents would let their child remain at this silly institution? It's, it's, it's like series of mysteries that take place in like this, the little small sa- seaside town that keep having murders. <laughs> just leave. Just move away. <laughs> move to another seaside town talking about Azkaban and the Dementors, Sirius has that obsessive feeling. He knows, well, sorry, first it's the feeling of, he knows he's innocent. Mm -hmm. And so that's the feeling he clings onto that keeps him sane and human because it's not a happy feeling. Mm -hmm. It is, it is knowledge of what keeps him who he is. And I couldn't help but think about the work of Brian Stevenson with the Equal Justice Initiative, oh, working sure. with death row inmates, specifically death row inmates who were incarcerated mm-hmm. uh, unjustly, mm-hmm. and 30-year-long death row inmates who are then set free because of the work of, of wow. incredible uh, lawyers doing work in, in this realm. And I, I can only think that that they might have that same you know, knowledge. It's not a happy thought, and yet it is the thought that can keep someone going mm-hmm. but then Sirius gets the newspaper and his thought changes to obs- obsession over Pettigrew it's also not a happy thought and it makes sense if everything else has been removed all that he has left to cling to is his innocence and this new newfound desire to protect Harry from a creature that he knows will betray and, and try to you know sync up with hook up with Lord Voldemort and and kill so those two things, those two things become his obsessions because everything else has been removed. Mm-hmm. And there was a spy in the Order of the Phoenix and Black and Lupin suspect each other. But they don't suspect Peter. And I'm wondering if they don't suspect Peter because he's always been discounted. He's always Absolutely. been the, the, the sidekick, the tag along. I wonder if they think Voldemort wouldn't want him. Yeah, because he's, he's just... Too cowardly to, he's too cowardly to betray them, even if he might have those inclinations. He's, he's not brave enough to do that. And uh, Sirius tells Pettigrew, you should have died rather than betray your friends. And all I could think of was Jesus saying in, in John's gospel, no one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. It's a hidden, sort of a hidden scriptural reference, probably not intentional, but it's there. And certainly the cornerstone of the Gryffindor identity, which all four of these boys, young men are Gryffindors. So that courage and bravery to go to death, even for your friend, rather than betray them. Later on, Harry does fulfill what uh, Sirius mm. tells us says about Peter in going in the you know in book seven, going to face Voldemort, knowing that he's going to die. Harry Harry does fulfill that great that that commandment of Jesus's. And speaking of Jesus's commandments, uh, you know Jesus says that uh, I came that they that they may have joy and their joy will be complete. The beginning of chapter twenty is so beautiful when when Sirius says, "You can come live with me, Harry," um, and he doesn't think Harry's gonna. <laughs> Say, oh, what a great idea. Of course, if you want to spend time with your aunt and uncle, I understand. It's like, no, no, no way, no way. And and I love the moment where Sirius, when he, when Harry says, yeah, I'd love to live with you, the transformation of Sirius's visage 
is really well re- really well said in the book where he looks 10 years younger his face looks fuller the smile makes him look like he did in the wedding picture and we see serious for who he, who he truly is not this obsession dominated person who wants to kill but somebody who wants to nurture and bring in his best friend's child into his life amazing and and that's the memory that's the the future memory that hasn't happened yet that Harry's using to power his Patronus later on in the chapter as the Dementors are coming down on them. He says, it's okay. We'll be okay. I'm going to live with him. And that works as best as it can to overcome those Patron, uh, be, to overcome those Dementors. Um, and it's, it is a shame. One of the great tragedies of these books that they don't get to have that relationship for very long. And we're going, well, yeah, we, uh, we have sorry. one more episode to, to not know whether or not they're going to be together. I'm going to hold on oh, that's to, true. Okay. I'm going to hold right. on to my hope that the next time I read the last two chapters of Prisoner of Azkaban, they will be together because that's how books work, right? That is they, how books they work. They change based on how I want them to the be. The books, that works if you, like me, have finally had pages start falling out of your oh copy of Prisoner Azkaban <laughs> that you bought in 2003. Yeah, I'm going to miss a whole bunch next time I reread it because the pages are just falling out. So. so speaking of next time, what are we reading? Next time on the podcast, we'll be reading chapters 21 and 22. That's Hermione's Secret and Owl Post again. Happy reading. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians, and on Twitter at nerdychristians. That's Carrie. You can find me on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on my brand new website, adamthomas.net. Check out Seven of Shadow, the final volume of my fantasy series, The Shields of Suleril, on Amazon. And if you read all four volumes of The Shields of Suleril, you'll see me starting to understand a little bit more about gender identity. <laughs> uh, and you can always find both Carrie and me right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. We are made in God's image, and the diversity of humankind offers us a glimpse of the incomprehensible creativity of God. Let us therefore embrace one another as equals, take a delight in the essential differences between people, listen to the stories of those who have been marginalized, forced into hiding, persecuted or erased, use our voices to stand up for their rights. For we are enriched and made complete by the variety of genders and gender expressions that God created. Amen.